Hey listeners, I recently launched an ad-free Serial Napper feed so that you can enjoy the podcast without interruptions. Elevate your Serial Napper listening experience by joining my Patreon community and get yourself an ad-free feed on Spotify. For just $2 a month, you can become a member today and unlock ad-free episodes while still supporting the podcast. It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Mother's Day is almost here. Have you found that truly special sentimental gift for your mom yet? Don't worry, I got you. MyLifeInABook.com is a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Here's how it works. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature And MyLifeInABook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges that she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and your children can treasure forever. Your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. I loved this idea so much that I've started my own My Life in a Book for my children to have. The thought of my son and daughter being able to learn about my life story as they grow into their own adulthood is truly special. It's been an enjoyable journey of self-reflection for me too, with questions like, which one event made the greatest impact on your life? It's brought back memories I didn't even know I had. I love it, and I know your mother will too. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER for 10% off today. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. I'm back with another true crime story to lull you to sleep or perhaps to give you nightmares. Most people who are interested in true crime are well aware of Amber Hagerman, the little girl who was abducted and killed while she was riding her bicycle, the inspiration for the creation of the Amber Alert. However, the murder of 8-year-old Mindy Tran, which happened just two years prior to Amber's death, is a much lesser-known story with so many eerie similarities. Mindy was a little girl from Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. She would go missing on August 17, 1994, while riding her pink bicycle to her friend's house to go play. Her body would be discovered six weeks later in a shallow grave only a few blocks away from her house, hidden amongst the brush in a park. Witnesses reported seeing a man in the area carrying a large, heavy suitcase with him. 
The belief was that this man had killed Mindy and then transported her body to the woods in this suitcase. Identified as Shannon Murin, a man who lived in the same duplex as Mindy's friend, the investigation into this suspect and what happened to Mindy Tran would lead to so many shocking revelations, including a possible police cover-up and a love affair within the jury. To this day, the Mindy Tran murder remains unsolved. So let's jump right in. Eight-year-old Mindy Tran lived in the safe but bustling city of Kelowna, British Columbia, with her mother, her father, and her older sister, Mimi. While Mimi was quite a bit older than her, a teenager already, the sisters got along really well, with Mimi always looking out for the very shy Mindy. Mindy was described as a sweet, happy girl who was shy around strangers, according to her sister. She loved going swimming, reading all of the Archie comic books, playing with her friends, and especially riding around the neighborhood on her pink bicycle. Pink was her favorite color, as seen on every square inch of her bedroom. It was the summer of 1994. School was out. The weather was warm and sunny, with it staying light outside until late in the evening. On this day, August 17th, the sun was still out at around 7pm, so after finishing up dinner, Mindy decided to hop on her pink bicycle and then ride down to her friend Charmaine's house to ask her to play. This was something that had been done many times before with no issues. They lived in a quiet neighborhood that was considered safe, and it was only a short drive down the road, maybe five minutes away, so Mindy felt confident that she could do it no problem. It's believed that she put her pink bike down in front of the building where the friend lived, walked up to the front door, and then knocked. Unbeknownst to Mindy, no one was home at the time. Moments later, Mindy would be abducted, with only her pink bike left near the curb of the building. It all happened so quickly. In the blink of an eye, she was gone. When Mindy didn't return home that evening and her bike was found abandoned by the curb, the police were called. There would be a massive search effort, including over 100 volunteers and law enforcement who would go door to door, conducting home searches and meticulously checking every area of the neighborhood. Even helicopters would be deployed as part of the search. Sadly, nothing was found. Not a shoe or a toy left behind. Just nothing. This was 1994, and the Amber Alert would not be created for several more years, which is really unfortunate, because I think that it could have been really helpful in this situation. Instead, information about Mindy's disappearance had to be spread much slower through word of mouth. Mindy was described as being around 3 foot 7 inches tall, and she was last seen wearing a Mickey Mouse shirt, light-colored shorts, and flowered runners. Whatever happened to Mindy happened in broad daylight, while people were still out on the streets enjoying the beautiful summer weather. There were several witnesses who noted seeing Mindy riding around her bike in the neighborhood. Police would speak with two witnesses in particular who claimed that they saw Mindy riding her bike down the street at around 6.45 p.m. 
they would see her lay her bike in front of the property at 350 Taylor Road. And then she walked towards the duplex where her friend lived at 360 Taylor Road, which was around 6.50 p.m. that night. The witnesses went inside a friend's house very briefly, and when they came out, Mindy was gone. Only her pink bike remained on the curb. These two witnesses also noted that they observed an older off-white van driving slowly around the neighborhood that night. This would spark a witch hunt for pretty much every person who drove a white van in the whole city of Kelowna. And it kind of makes me wonder if this was the event in particular that made me terrified of every white van I ever saw. Another tip would come in just a few days later with a witness who reported seeing a girl who fit Mindy's description being forced into a brown truck that had a canopy on it. Unfortunately, this bit of information was really all that they had to go on, and neither of these vehicles would ever be found. There were other witnesses in the area, and I'm talking many, like 9 or 10 different people, who saw an unidentified man walking around the area carrying a suitcase that appeared to be heavy. When investigators learned this, they came up with a theory that maybe this man had been carrying Mindy inside of the suitcase. Because Mindy's pink bike had been found lying outside of the building where her 8-year-old best friend Charmaine lived, investigators wanted to speak with everyone who lived in and around the duplex. The abduction would have happened right outside of their home, and all within a very short amount of time. Maybe they had seen or heard something. As mentioned, this home was a duplex, with both of the units being rented out. One unit was rented by the family of Mindy's friend Charmaine. The other unit was rented by a couple of people, including a man named Shannon Murren. Charmaine and her family were out at the time that Mindy went to call on her, so no one would have answered their door. As for their neighbor, Shannon Murren, he told investigators that he woke up from a nap early on that evening, sometime between 6 and 7. He opened a beer, and then he went to go find his stolen mountain bike, which had been taken a few weeks ago. They were able to confirm some of his story, with several of his friends helping him to find his stolen mountain bike that evening, so they were with him all night. Investigators put out a plea to the public to keep an eye out for the brown truck, the white van, and the man who had been seen carrying a suitcase in the area. It was all the information that they had to go on at that point. The whole community pulled together to try to find this little girl as weeks passed and no new evidence was found. The fact that an 8-year-old child could be abducted in plain sight while the sun was still out and there were many people walking around, it was terrifying to think about. Police used every tool that was available to them, including a hypnotist who tried to get more information out of a witness. They also utilized a psychic medium and even divining rods or dowsing rods. If you're not familiar with dowsing rods, they're very interesting, though highly debatable whether or not they work. The person operating the rods holds them out in front of them. The two rods are supposed to begin to turn in towards each other when the person holding them walks over any disturbances in the ground, like if they were to walk over a pocket of water or even a gravesite. 
there's no real scientific basis to proving that they actually work. Most experts say that it's by pure chance if the user subconsciously guides the rods to cross and then subsequently finds a disturbance under the ground. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals that are also dietitian approved No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day, because that's half the battle, and I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious, with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code napper50 at factormeals.com slash napper50 to get 50% off your first box 
plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Still, investigators decided to utilize them. No harm, no foul, they just wanted to find Mindy. The man who operated these dowsing rods was named Rex Fitzgerald, and he was a dedicated volunteer assisting in the search of Mindy Tran. Just about every day, he would go out with his dowsing rods and search for little Mindy. Each time, he would find nothing. That is, until the 11th of October, 1994, about eight weeks after Mindy had initially gone missing. Fitzgerald happened to be searching a wooded area in Mission Creek Regional Park with another local volunteer named Gary Cam. Mission Creek Regional Park is located just a few blocks away from where Mindy lived and from where she went missing. The men came upon a very strong, distinct, foul odor. It was the scent of decomposing human remains. This was an area that had been searched many times before, but nothing had been found on those occasions. That is, until these two men went dowsing and nearly stepped on a small floral running shoe. A shoe which matched the description of the shoes that Mindy was last seen wearing. When they pushed aside the brush on top of the shoe, they discovered the partially nude body of a child. An autopsy would confirm the remains as belonging to 8-year-old Mindy Tran. Her manner of death had been homicide, and the cause listed due to strangulation. The killer had used the child's own shorts to murder her, which had been found wrapped around her neck. Her nose had also been broken in several places. Due to the advanced state of decomposition her body was in, the medical examiner could not confirm whether or not she had been sexually assaulted. However, it was assumed that she probably had due to being found naked from the waist down. There would be no DNA evidence recovered from that sexual assault. Mindy had been found very close to her home and less than a mile away from where she went missing. This led investigators to believe that the killer had not used a vehicle to transport her to Mission Creek Park. They ruled out the tips regarding that brown truck and the white van and instead began focusing on those witness statements about the man who was seen carrying around the suitcase. Once that information was released to the public, there would be more reported sightings of the suitcase man to come in. Some said they saw a man carrying a heavy suitcase. Others reported that the suitcase appeared to be completely empty. There was a multitude of varying reports. Approximately five months after Mindy Tran was abducted and killed, the Kelowna RCMP would give a press conference naming 44-year-old Shannon Murren as their main suspect in the murder. Shannon was the man who lived in the duplex next door to Mindy's best friend, Charmaine, the little girl that Mindy had gone to call on to play that evening. Shannon was known as a bit of a drifter, originally hailing from Newfoundland, and he had once worked as a mechanic. He had already served prison time for armed robbery and assault, and he was now facing new weapons-related charges in an unrelated incident. Charges for Mindy's murder were not being laid at that time, but the public was made aware that Shannon was the number one suspect and he was being locked away behind bars on the new gun charges. 
Police were looking for any information from the public that could help them in bringing charges of murder against Shannon Murren, because what they had on him wasn't enough. On the evening that Mindy went missing, Shannon was questioned by the police, and he had an alibi for his whereabouts. As he had previously told them, he had woken up from a nap sometime between 6 and 7 p.m., he had a beer, and then he went to go look for his stolen mountain bike. He was with three other friends who confirmed that he was with them. While they were searching for the stolen bike, they were made aware of Mindy's disappearance, and the group, including Shannon, said that they helped with the search for the little girl. That was the story according to Shannon and his friends who all backed him up, but the police weren't buying it. He lived at the home where Mindy was last seen alive out front of. Their theory was that Shannon was there when Mindy went to knock on her friend's front door, that he quickly abducted her, assaulted her, and then killed her. Then he put her body into the suitcase where he transported her to Mission Creek Park and then dumped her body. They believed that he was the man carrying the suitcase, the one that several witnesses reported seeing that evening, and he did match the general description that had been given. While they were just now releasing his name to the public, they had spent the last several months building a case against Shannon Murren, one that would do more harm than help the investigation. Here is where the story gets to be almost unbelievable. Allegations would be made against the RCMP saying that they were responsible for convincing a group of men that Shannon had killed Mindy and then convincing them to beat him up to elicit a confession. According to these allegations, these men were informed by the lead investigating team that Shannon Murren was in fact the person who killed 8-year-old Mindy Tran, but they just couldn't prove it. An attack was orchestrated to basically threaten and beat Shannon into confessing that he did it. According to these men, they were told that they could basically do whatever they needed to do in order to get that confession and that they wouldn't be charged with anything. So the men went to his house and they confronted Shannon about Mindy's murder. Shannon brandished a gun in this altercation, which was against his conditions related to his previous firearms charges. The men are able to get the gun away from him, they beat him up, they toss him into the back of their pickup truck, and then they take him to a park where Mindy's grave is located. While investigators in charge of Mindy's file watch from a distance, these men continue to beat Shannon and demand that he confess to the murder. They're yelling out, you did it, you have to admit it. Someone who lived near the park happened to hear the men yelling, and they called 911. When the responding officers got to the scene, they were met by the lead investigating team on Mindy's case. And allegedly, these responding officers were told to wait back, not to interfere with the beating that was happening in the park. This is all according to the claims made by both Shannon Murin and the men who beat him. Shannon was nearly beat to death, and he had to spend an extended time in hospital recovering from his injuries. When he did eventually recover and was released from the hospital, he was immediately arrested for those firearm charges stemming from having a gun in the home during the beating, which was against his previous conditions. 
and he's sent right to jail, which is when the police publicly announce him as their main suspect in Mindy's killing. Investigators were on a time crunch to collect enough evidence that could prove that Shannon Murin had killed Mindy Tran. They focused on finding that suitcase. It's pretty crazy to me, but after all of this time had already passed, they decided to finally search the local landfill to see if they could locate the suitcase. And to me, this sounds like they were desperately trying to find anything solid that they could use against him because they honestly didn't have very much. They would indeed find a suitcase that matched the description of what they were looking for. However, when they would send it for forensic testing, no evidence would be found inside to connect Shannon to Mindy's killing. Two years would pass with Shannon Murin behind bars while the police continued to build their case against him for Mindy's murder. Then on January 13th, 1997, the same week, that he is set to be released from prison on those weapon charges, first-degree murder charges were laid against Shannon Murin. The killing of Mindy Tran was a case based on circumstantial evidence, and Shannon maintains his innocence. While the prosecution and the defense prepare their cases, Mindy's family patiently waits to have their day in court. Almost five years after Mindy was killed, in August of 1999, the trial would finally begin, and that just goes to show you how slowly things move through the Canadian court system. The prosecution alleged that Shannon Murin killed Mindy Tran and then put her body in the suitcase in order to transport her to the dumping location. While Shannon Murin had an alibi that three of his friends had confirmed he was searching for that stolen mountain bike at the time she went missing, they now allege that the initial timeline was wrong and that these friends had not, in fact, seen Shannon until much later in the evening, around 9 p.m., after the little girl was already deceased. As for physical evidence, well, they didn't have much, if anything at all. There was a hair found on Minnie's underwear, However, it didn't have the root attached to it, meaning it couldn't be tested for DNA the typical way. Mitochondrial DNA testing, which was still very much in its infancy in the 90s, would have to be done. With this kind of testing, it would be impossible to match it to one specific suspect. However, it would identify a narrow list of potential suspects. It would basically narrow down a list of people that could have done it. According to the prosecution's expert witnesses, Shannon Murin was a match to the DNA profile with the likelihood of this sample matching one in 128 people. This DNA sample basically ruled him in as a potential suspect, but it still did not identify him 100% that that DNA belonged to him. Unfortunately, any other potential DNA evidence would be lost. One police officer who was working very closely with the family admitted to washing Mindy's clothes because he didn't want to give them back to her parents, soiled. Obviously, a huge misstep and really difficult to comprehend how something like that happens. It's really unfortunate because that clothing could have been the key to 100% positively identifying Mindy Tran's killer. While the trial was ongoing, there would be a surprise confession but not by Shannon. 
by a 48-year-old man named James Hubert Holmes, who confessed to killing Mindy while he was serving time behind bars. Allegedly, he told his cellmate that after he killed Mindy, he hid her body in a condemned building, and then he dumped it when the search party was over. He claimed to have planted Mindy's pink bike in front of Shannon's house to throw off suspicion. This was all according to a jailhouse snitch, and when Holmes himself was asked about the alleged confession, he denied it. He also passed a polygraph test, and his DNA was not a match to that hair follicle, so the case against Shannon continued. Over 80 witnesses would be called to take the stand over a seven-month period that the trial took place. In the end, Shannon Murren would be acquitted in the murder of eight-year-old Mindy Tran. Her family was devastated, and they put out a statement saying the following, quote, Regardless of the outcome of the trial, our great sorrow is that we will never have our daughter Mindy back with us. We have learned to live with this situation. She is in our thoughts every day, and she'll live on in our memory forever. We are unhappy and confused with the result of the trial. It is hard to believe this outcome. And here's where the story takes another strange turn. After the trial was over and Shannon was released from prison, one of the jurors, a woman named Kathy McDonald, took a particular interest in Shannon Murren and decided to call him to congratulate him. Yeah, a juror called to congratulate this man on escaping a murder charge. The pair struck up a friendship, maybe more, and Kathy, she offered to help Shannon write a book about what he went through during the trial. She followed him home back to Newfoundland, where the couple continued to deny that anything romantic was going on between them. There would be a criminal investigation launched into this juror's actions. You can't have a juror, particularly in the murder trial of a child, that is romantically interested in the suspect who's being charged. Nothing would ever come from that investigation, but one has to wonder if her feelings had any impact on the outcome of the trial, if she were able to affect the way that other jurors looked at the evidence. Unfortunately, we'll never know. However, a few years later, Shannon and Kathy would finally admit that they were in a relationship together. After being acquitted in Mindy Tran's murder, Shannon would be back in the spotlight after being named as a person of interest in the double homicide of a couple who vanished from their home in Newfoundland in 1993, about a year prior to Mindy going missing. A man named Joey Oliver was claiming that he lured the couple to a wooded area where Shannon proceeded to shoot them in the back of the head, execution style. Shannon denied his involvement in the killing, claiming he had never even met this couple, and he has never been charged. Since then, Shannon has sued the RCMP, and he was rewarded an undisclosed amount of money for the way that they handled the Mindy Tran investigation. In the lawsuit, he alleged that the RCMP had gotten a group of guys to beat him into confessing to the crime, and prior to that, they set him up in a murder-for-hire type situation. It's alleged that shortly after Mindy's murder, the RCMP had an undercover officer attempt to hire Shannon Murren to kill a mother and child, which he refused to do. 
And that's when they moved forward with this police-sanctioned beating, according to Shannon Murren. The really crappy part about this whole situation is that 8-year-old Mandy Tran has been lost in all of it. The police focused in on Shannon Murren really early on in the investigation instead of looking at all potential leads like that van, that brown truck. We just don't know. So there may have been things that were missed. I have no idea whether Shannon Murren had anything to do with the murder, but in looking at the case that was put together against him, it's really not shocking why he was acquitted. He could be the worst man on earth, I don't know, but this was a botched investigation that has pretty much stopped anyone from getting to the truth. It should be noted that, to this day, RCMP believe that they had the right man from the very beginning. They still believe that Shannon Murin killed Mindy Tran. Unfortunately, they haven't been able to prove it. Mindy's murder case only remains open because there hasn't been a conviction. It does not appear that anyone else is being looked at as a suspect, which is really heartbreaking for her family. Constable Chris Clark of the Kelowna RCMP said, quote, In this particular case, because there was an acquittal and because of the severity of the offense, that file can't be closed. If any new information were to come to light, then that would be added to the investigational file. And that's basically where we're at with this story. The Mindy Tran murder remains unsolved. So, that's it for me tonight. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you prefer video, my podcasts are also on YouTube in video format. You can just search for Nikki Young Serial Napper, and that's all one word. For everything else, like merch or to leave me a message, visit SerialNapper.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay kind, especially in the comments. Bye.